You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Today's passage, right, Mark 6, 1 through 13, is uh, two stories that focus on rejection. First of Jesus, then of his disciples. Before this, Jesus had been out making quite the stir, right? And this is the first time he's returning home to Nazareth, being the most famous person from Nazareth. Um, the most famous person who's grown up around here is probably Justin Bieber, right? I saw on a list he's the eighth most famous person in the world who's alive. I'm not sure if other people remember this, but in August, August 23rd, 2010, Justin was actually in Elmira, right? He was at Lions Park watching a U16 girls soccer game. How do I know those exact details? Because it was literally front page news for the Woolwich Observer. I think I put a an article. <laughs> if you look for wherever Justin's been, uh, in, whenever he's been in Stratford, which is his actual hometown, you can figure out basically every visit he's had in the last 12 years. Every time he's spotted, it's massive news for their town. You get at least a few newspaper articles and a few thousand social media posts every time it happens. Jesus is in a similar situation here. He's returning to Nazareth for the first time since starting his ministry and it causes a big stir. Nazareth is like a really, really small town. This is, it's not, we're not talking like Elmira or Stratford even here. We're talking like Hawksville or Floridale or Westmont Rose. Like, it's very small. And it's not like today where people would, you know, commute out of their towns for work and for fun. Um, every, pretty much everyone would spend their entire life in the town they grew up in. So everyone would know Jesus, and Jesus would know everyone. But Jesus doesn't seem to be acting the way he always has, right? People are astonished by what they hear in his teaching. They're asking questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works being done by his hands? It's clear that Jesus is acting different than what he had in his previous 30 years. Throughout Mark, we see Jesus keeping a low profile, especially early in his ministry. It's clear that Jesus had a time when he wanted to reveal his power and deity, and it wasn't always the first time he met someone. I've always assumed that it would be easy for me to tell what, if I met Jesus, even when he was a kid, that he was super special. But we forget that Jesus' humble beginnings isn't just like a saying, right? Jesus' childhood and early adulthood looked a lot, lo, sorry, looked nothing special to the outsider. Uh, this is a quote from a biblical scholar, David E. Garland, talking about Jesus' time before his ministry. We have tended over the years to remove the original offense associated with Jesus' background and to romanticize his trade as a carpenter. Some today imagine him as a master builder of grand edifices in the surrounding cities rather than a journeyman carpenter crafting simple yokes and beams or a rough construction worker working in stone. The apocryphal infancy gospels invented all kinds of fantastic stories about Jesus attempting to glorify his youth as a wonder kid. Modern preachers have suggested that Jesus would have been the star of their favorite sport at his high school, as well as the classic valedictorian. This attempt to inject more grandeur into Jesus' background reveals that we are still influenced by the world's standards of judgment and its concern for prestige. So with a view of Jesus' humble background, we can move on to the rejection he receives from Nazareth. They say, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
Before I get into the main point of my passage, um, I have to address something else quick. If I'm ever given a verse that directly contradicts a common unbiblical belief that some people have, I have to address it. So uh, there are some Christians who believe that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. Uh, After Jesus, she never had any kids. And if you're like me and you look at this verse and you think like, well, it literally mentions his brothers and talks about his sisters. Um, There's also a number of other verses that, that talk about this. So for example, Luke Luke 2 verse 7, talking about Mary, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Matthew 1, 24, 25, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel command of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, right? The NIV is a little bit more uh, upfront about it. It says, it says he did not consummate their marriage until he given birth to the son, um, John 7, verse 3 says, Jesus' brother said to him, Galatians 1, 19, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. 1 Corinthians 9, 5, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers? I hope these verses are clear enough proof to you that Jesus uh, did have siblings from Mary. This belief of Mary's perpetual virginity seems to have originated out of some fake book originally written, or claimed to be written by by the James in our verse, but somehow it was written about 100 years after he died. Um, I don't have time to elaborate on all the ways people have tried to bend their mind around this biblical evidence, but uh, if you want to talk with, with me afterwards about it, I'm happy to. Um, ultimately, the lesson is that if you hold the Bible as God's revealed word to us, you have to allow it to shape your beliefs. So be assured that Jesus had siblings and that there's no reason to believe that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. So with that out of the way, uh, we get back to the main point of this story. Jesus is rejected by the people he grew up with. We see two, in this verse, we see two related but distinct reasons why Jesus and his, uh, why Jesus' family and his friends rejected him. The first reason is that they're comfortable with a different Jesus than the real one. The second reason is that they took offense at what he was saying and asking of them. Let's look at the first reason. The people who grew up with Jesus, who have known Jesus for like at least 25 years, are used to him. They know his carpentry business. They know his mom. Although he's probably dead at this point, they know Joseph. They knew his brothers and sisters. And they think they know him. So they're shocked to hear what Jesus says in the synagogue. They hear him challenging them and making bold claims about himself. And they think, this isn't the Jesus we know. They're comfortable with hometown Jesus. The guy from their village, but not Jesus the Messiah. So they reject him. It's clear in this story that being accustomed to hometown Jesus isn't a valid excuse. Later, Jesus marvels at their rejection of him. And yet, are you accustomed to a different Jesus? A different Jesus in in Nazareth 2,000 years ago comes from growing up with him and being unaware of his deity. That's hometown Jesus. A different Jesus in Elmira today comes primarily from two sources, popular culture and religious instruction. I'll call these misconstrued pictures of Jesus mainstream Jesus and secondhand Jesus. So first, what does mainstream Jesus look like? At best, it's, you know, Jesus was a good guy who has some good things to say. We see this whenever we hear non-Christians attribute positive things to Jesus' teachings, right? Like, you know, love your neighbor or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? They like that. So people spin Jesus as a positive influence without an acknowledgement of his deity. This idea that Jesus was just good 
is a way for agreeable people today to allow others to live their own truth. You say Jesus was God? You know, that's great. I'm sure he was a nice guy and he teaches some nice things and you're a nice person, so you live your truth. This Canadian politeness makes it incredibly easy to deflect the life-shaking news of Jesus. You aren't being combative, right? You're, that would actually generate discussion. You're being agreeable enough to prevent any further discussion without needing to hear more about the Jesus than the shallow gist that you get from culture. If this is you, if you think that Jesus seems like a nice guy who teaches some nice things that you generally agree with, but you aren't willing to dedicate your life to him, you need to reevaluate this fictional Jesus you've created. The historical Jesus would be shocked that you think this. Jesus claimed to be God. He makes a lot of these types of statements throughout scripture, like one in John 10, 30. He says, I and the Father are one. The Father being God the Father. There's this idea from C.S. Lewis that with these types of claims Jesus is making, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit, him, spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is mainstream Jesus at its best, right? An underwhelming, lame duck Jesus who demands no respect. Mainstream Jesus at its worst uses Jesus the same way they would use Mickey Mouse or the Tooth Fairy. They trivialize, they fictionalize, and they ultimately degrade Jesus for entertainment. Uh, Cleopatra is actually a great example of this. So Cleopatra was a real person, and I'm guessing the majority of you at least have an idea of who she is. All right, you're probably thinking ancient Egypt, buried in the pyramids, big fancy headdress. You probably also think of her more as a character than a person. Because unless you are a, a real history buff, your primary exposure to her is purely fictional representations. Because in reality, she actually lived closer to the building of the CN Tower than the pyramids. She was Greek, not Egyptian. She inherited Egypt through a long line of ancestors from Alexander the Great. And because she was Greek, she most likely never wore any of those fancy Egyptian headdresses. My point is, when we inundate ourselves with fictional representations of someone, we end up creating a fictional character in place of the real person. So what type of Jesus character is created by secular media? Firstly, this Jesus is entirely not God, right? The fictional portrayals of him make him feel like one of us, right? Like, so for example, the Da Vinci Code has him having an affair and an illegitimate child. This Jesus is also a fairy tale. When we see a cartoon Jesus next to like a cartoon Santa Claus, we are being told that Jesus is no more real today than any of the other made-up characters in the story. Exposure to this sinful fairy tale Jesus isn't something that will immediately ruin your perception of Jesus, but it does chip away at it. There's this phenomenon in psychology called the illusory truth effect. Basically what it says is that we tend to believe false information when it gets repeated to us over and over and over. Jesus was God on earth, right? He was sinless, and he was entirely real. What the illusory truth effect is saying is we run the risk of internalizing 
a minimalized Jesus, a fictional one that has no more power over us than Bugs Bunny. So those are the two pictures of mainstream Jesus, right? Jesus as a nice guy that everyone can agree with, and Jesus as a fictional character. If we're comfortable with this mainstream Jesus, then we can't accept when Jesus makes bold claims about who he is, just like these Nazarenes couldn't, right? We reject, we, we reject Jesus. Now, we can get comfortable with a false Jesus from pop culture, but we can also get comfortable with a false Jesus from religion. So I'm going to call that secondhand Jesus. Um, last year, I was up at a cottage with, with my family, and we noticed that there was, across the lake, there was a cliff that looked pretty cool to climb. And I love climbing. Um, and there's one section of the cliff that was a bit overhanging, and I thought it looked awesome. So it was overhanging. It still looked featured enough to be able to climb, and the water below it looked deep. So if I fell, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be anything but water to catch me. Um, but it looked high enough to be a challenge, but not so high that falling off would be any sort of danger. So with this confidence of this scouting mission, right, I, I returned later with my climbing shoes to actually climb it. And once I got out of the boat, my confidence started to go down. I thought, I, I thought that the cliff was perfectly overhanging the water, but at the base there was actually a rock jutting out, which is not a good thing to fall onto. <laughs> um, but I was still confident I could climb it. It looked, didn't look ridiculously challenging. So I chalked up my hands, and I started up the rock. Quickly I noticed the rock wasn't as solid as I'd hoped. Some of the holds I grabbed onto felt almost sandy, uh, like tiny fragments of it were just rubbing off. Then I was about halfway up, and I realized that there was nothing for me to grab onto for another few meters. Um, with my confidence completely broken, and remembering the rocky landing below, I very gingerly climbed down and bailed out on the climb entirely. I had a false confidence. I thought I knew what I was getting into, but ultimately, when it, time, when it came time for me to hop on the wall, I realized that I had no idea. This is the second way we can be like the Nazarenes. If we grew up around the church and think we know what Jesus is like without experiencing him ourselves, the Nazarenes were comfortable with the Jesus of their youth, and we can be too. Maybe you grew up in the church and you think you know who Jesus is, but all of your experience is secondhand, right? When you listen to me or Darcy or Dusty or Harold speak on Mark, have you actually read Mark yourself? Is the only time you pray in a group setting? The secondhand Jesus is one where you feel like you've checked the boxes, you showed up to the right places, and you're comfortable with where you're at. But if you actually get on the cliff, you'll realize that Jesus asks more of us and gives more in return than any amount of church life can prepare us for. So I encourage you to think about it. Is my private, one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus reflective of how I present myself? Or am I comfortable with the mirage of Jesus that I never actually let into the center of my life? Am I rejecting Jesus, but acting like I'm not? So we have two ways that we can be like the Nazarenes, who had the wrong idea of who Jesus was. They had hometown Jesus, and we have mainstream Jesus and secondhand Jesus. What's in common with these false Jesuses? It's a more comfortable Jesus. It's a Jesus we can ignore. It's a Jesus where we don't feel the sting of rejecting him. Our hearts can idle. No challenge, no transformation, no repentance required. So what happens when you just want to be comfortable with Jesus and you're met with the real Jesus? The Nazarenes here had no option but to hear what Jesus was saying. So how did they react? Right? And they took offense at him. The word here is skandalon in Greek, which is where we get the word scandal. These people were scandalized by Jesus. His teachings embarrassed them. Is this you? 
Are, are you embarrassed by Jesus? Are you an undercover Christian where you don't want anyone to know you're a Christian because, of, because you're scandalized by Jesus? Now, when they took offense at him, what do you think was offensive to them? Right? Today, Christianity can manage to offend the entire political spectrum. If you're on the political left wing, you're offended at Jesus' teachings on sin. There are a number of movements today whose goal is to promote and normalize sin. And these people are profoundly offended, right? They're scandalized when they hear that avoiding sin is actually what's best for them. God knows the impacts these sins have in our life and, and in society, and that life would be better without them, right? Galatians 6, 7, 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now those on the political right wing are offended that one of our primary goals on this earth is to raise up the disadvantaged, the marginalized, the foreigner, and the poor. They say that people deserve what they're suffering through because in our capitalistic society, they've done it to themselves. But what does James 2, 5, 6 say? Listen, my beloved, my beloved brothers. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And most people in Western society, regardless of where you lean politically, are offended that Jesus doesn't guarantee our earthly rights and freedoms. He doesn't say, if we're wronged, we need to set it right, right? Instead, what does he say? I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Does Jesus offend you? Are your cultural sensitivities fighting the desires of your spirit? To be honest, I'd be surprised if it, if it wasn't. Personally, I know my own pride and desire to be respected makes me shy about sharing the good news of Jesus. Culture has told me that there are some things that I need to keep to myself, right? But I've constantly felt the Holy Spirit moving in my life and fighting this ingrained belief that I shouldn't talk about my faith. It's a battle between our allegiances to Jesus and to culture. The Nazarenes have lost this battle. They're offended and they reject Jesus. And Jesus, even though he knows it's coming, right? He, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and, and in his own household. Even though he knows it's coming, he marveled at their unbelief. It wasn't a surprise, but it was still amazing to see how his hometown could be so calloused and short-sighted. It even says that Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's not clear exactly what could do no mighty work there means, but, uh, you know, Jesus might have needed willing participants for his miracles, or does the skepticism make Jesus not want to perform miracles? Whatever the reason, the Nazarenes excluded themselves from the work of Jesus by their rejection. So Jesus moves on from Nazareth and sends his disciples out to a whole bunch of villages. He instructs them to pack light, right? No bread, no bag, no money, only one tunic. Jesus is making clear that this is urgent. His time on earth is limited, and the disciples need to be back with Jesus to, to witness all that he's going to do. 
he's also making it clear that this trip is not going to be luxurious, right? Not only are they barely bringing anything, they're also charged to stay at the first house that lets them in. So once they spend a few days teaching at a village and the rich guy uh, with the nice house offers them a place to stay, they can't just take the nicer offer. They're to stick with their word and let their yes be yes. But what if the people don't want the disciples? Jesus says, If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What does shaking the dust off your feet mean? It's a symbolic way of saying, you had your chance, you rejected it, now face the consequences. It's the disciples saying, I don't want even the slightest bit of your village being brought with me. It's a harsh condemnation. These disciples are doing miraculous stuff, right? They're healing people. They're casting out demons. They're also on a limited schedule, so they don't have time to deal with people who see their miracles with their eyes and then still reject them. I don't think we have the same calling as the disciples do here to condemn places and to abandon them because they won't listen. Their situation is unique. We have much more time, and there's many more of us to go around. I still think the words that Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16 are more relevant to us. Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of the elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. But while our ministry may look different, the reception of the good news is still the same. Right? That Jesus that the gospel is either an accepting or there's a rejecting. Jesus is clear to the disciples. There is no in-between option. There is no snooze button on the gospel. There is no occasional Christian. So maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I'll devote my life to Jesus later. Maybe you've got a goal, right? Once I'm done with school or once I get that new job or once I get married or once I have kids, then I'll be starting my real life. Then I can devote myself to Jesus. Maybe you're waiting for more time, right? Once work gets less crazy, once my kids grow up, once I retire, then I'll have the capacity to, to devote myself to Jesus. What Jesus is saying is, this is a yes or no thing. There will always be excuses. He isn't waiting for you to get yourself perfectly comfortable in this world before you can devote your life to him. So we see the disciples are being accepted or rejected, but what's the message they're bringing? What are they saying that's causing people to reject them? This is before Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected. So it's nothing about Jesus dying for our sins. It says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. The message is simple. One word, repent. The Greek word used here is metanoeo. Meta meaning change or transformation and noeo meaning understanding or thinking. This is the fundamental change in the way we think. When we repent, we go from a life where we desire and desperately wish to sin to a life where we're repulsed by it. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from the 1800s, puts it this way. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Some of you here might not have experienced this. And you might think, you know, my morals are pretty good. I don't need a transformation of how I feel about what I do. Note, though, in, in this passage, Jesus doesn't say, you know, if the people don't want to repent. They don't want a transformation on, on how they view sin. And they seem like nice people. You know, that's okay. Just leave them. No, he says, regardless of how upstanding 
<clears throat> these people appear to be, if they don't accept the, mes <clears throat> the message of repentance, shake their dust off your feet as you leave. Sin and corruption are universal to the human experience. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? God, in contrast, is, is perfect and sinless. Perhaps relative to some of the worst people in history, you're doing better than them, but compared to God, you're doing infinitely worse. Saying that you don't need repentance because you're doing well compared to others is like refusing anti-venom because the black mamba that just bit you was a bit smaller than average. So one thing you might catch here is these disciples are teaching before Jesus died, right? So do we today need to repent now that we have Jesus? Can we believe and be saved from our sins without changing how we view our sin? The Bible is extremely clear on this. No. Faith in Jesus and a repentant heart are like a right and left shoe. You're going to have either both or you're going to have neither. Mark 1.15 says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 20.21 20, I have declared to both the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Jesus calls people to repent all the time. In, by my count, he calls people to repent 17, ti 17 times in the gospel. Now, repentance doesn't mean that you never sin again, but it does mean that your attitude towards sin has been transformed. And this transformation is evidence that the Holy Spirit is making a difference in your life. Galatians 5 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? That's repentance. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality— Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. A life lived for sin, unrepentant, is an eternity that will ultimately be defined by rejecting Jesus. Our desire for sin and our participation in it has put us on the road to destruction. Sin is like this river here, the Bolton Strid over in England. The Strid doesn't look scary at all, right? It looks probably more, no more than a few feet across with some nice-looking rocky banks, and the water looks relatively calm. But every single report of someone entering uh, this, this river, the Strid, has actually ended in death. What this picture doesn't show is that this is essentially a jagged rock tunnel with a bit of the top cut out. It's many times deeper than you are tall, and upstream is a much, much larger river, which narrows down into this small tunnel, causing ridiculously strong undercurrents, which will smash you every which way into its rocky walls. When you live your life unrepentant, you are sitting on the Strid's mossy banks, dipping your feet in. You're toying with an unstoppable force and are too short-sighted to realize the risk and finality of your decision. And it can't be fixed by simply trying harder here. You can't just decide to cut sin out of your life. Tons of people have tried, right? No one has succeeded. It's like trying to get better at swimming before jumping in. Our only option here is the option that these villages, and in particular Nazareth, rejected. Jesus promises a transformed heart. One where, by repenting, you can walk away from the banks of the Strid and go on and experience life without teetering on disaster. 
Sin and evil would no longer dominate your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control would take its place. Everyone here has this same opportunity. Repent, lest Jesus shake your dust from his feet.